Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And so we ask by your Holy Spirit that we would now hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this your holy word that we may be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. These words are spoken to Jesus at his baptism, not only to declare to the world who Jesus is, but also to declare to the world who you are, who've walked through those same waters of baptism. See, we're told in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That in our baptism, we have been joined with him. Truly, Jesus was not baptized because he needed baptism. Jesus was baptized to show you and I what is in fact going on in our baptism. He was not baptized for his sake, he was baptized for our sake. See, Jesus didn't need sin washed away from him. We know that from Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, that he was tested and tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. And we also know that Jesus didn't need his baptism to tell him who he was for the first time. It's not like he's age 30, comes to the River Jordan and says, seriously, John? I'm the son of God? Really? Remember back in Luke chapter two where Mary and Joseph go up to the festival with Jesus? He's about 12 years of age and they lose him at the festival. Now, I don't know about you, but this should be an encouragement as a parent. I mean, we all as parents can feel like we've done boneheaded things and we've you know, been poor parents at moments, but you know, Mary and Joseph lost the son of God. So just be encouraged by that. And when they find him, what does he say to them? He says, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? In other words, Jesus, even as a child, knew who he was. So this baptism is not for his sake that he would know who he is. It's for the sake of the world knowing who he is. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. But even more so for us. All we who have been joined with him in those waters of baptism, these same words are spoken over us. This question of who am I? This question of who are you? This question of identity, which is so at the heart of the conversation going on in our world right now. This baptismal story Well, we just witnessed a moment ago with 15 candidates, the reason I stand here pretty much half soaked before you, this declares to you and I, reminds us afresh that the answer to the question, who am I, is not gonna be found within, nor is it gonna be found out there in the world. No, the answer to the question, who I am, is found in those waters. 
For those of us who have been baptized into Christ, this is where we find the answer to the identity question, who am I? Those waters tell you who you are. The challenge is when it comes to our identity, this impulse we have to look inside, to look at our feelings. The truth is, friends, if you want to know who you are, your feelings guiding you, they'll fail you. They'll get it right some of the time, but they'll let you down. If you ask the identity question, not of your feelings, but of your family, well, sometimes they'll get it right, but ultimately they'll let you down as well. They'll get it wrong. Your friends will let you down and get it wrong as well. Who am I? And your foes, oh, I'm sure they have lots to say about you, but they're going to get it wrong as well. The only one who gets this question right, who am I, is the Father in heaven. He knows who you are because he formed you and made you. See, what these waters of baptism tell us is three things this morning. God speaks over all those who go through these waters saying this. First of all, this is what the Father says. You belong to me. The first word from the Father at baptism is a word of belonging. You belong to me, he says. But secondly, not just do we belong to him, but the Father says, you're beloved to me. I love you. But even more than belonging to him and being beloved by him, these waters of baptism declare you are beautiful to God. God is saying you are beautiful to me. See, first we see that God is saying that we belong to him. Verse 11, Mark chapter one, if you're there with me in the text, just one verse we're looking at today. Verse 11, you are my son. Notice that the father doesn't say you are a son, a child, just, you know, one of many, any old son. No, you are my son. The emphasis here is on the relationship between the father and son. You are mine. We need to remember this as we begin this quest on identity. Because so often we're so obsessed with the question, who am I? Who am I? We forget to ask the biblical question, whose am I? The quest must begin with the former question. Whose am I? Who do I belong to? Right? And this sounds totally countercultural in our world. We live in a world that is obsessed with looking on the inside, with self-reflection, right? Finding the answers in here, right? You do you. Be yourself. Live your authentic life. The challenge is, we've got a name for this, by the way. We call this expressive individualism. This idea that you will find inside yourself how you feel right about yourself and your job is to then express your authentic self in the world. And it sounds good, but it ultimately will fail us. This is not the way that we've been made. This is not the way the world works. See, it's, it's not a new thing, this idea of expressive individualism, seeking inside to find the answers. 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 25. He said, they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This goes all the way back through human history. This impulse to look inside and find out who I am by my own terms. And not only is it old and not new, it's also not going to work. The truth is, as we look inside, 
we will again and again find instead a paradox, contradiction, confusion, constant change. Anyone who spends too much time looking inside to discover who they really are will find themselves with a plethora of answers that don't always line up and will change over time. I love how Brendan Manning in the Ragamuffin Gospel speaks of this interior look. He says it's ultimately you look inside and what you end up with is a pretty confusing picture. He says, when I get honest, I admit that I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I am trusting and I am suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said that I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. (laughs) Beginning the question of identity by looking only inside will ultimately fail us because this is not how we've been made. Think of it this way. Imagine you're on a ship. Back when ships didn't have modern instruments, okay? You're in the middle of the North Atlantic on a ship at night. There's no land in sight. How do ancient mariners navigate in the dark in the middle of the open ocean? How would they do it? They would look to what? They'd look up. They'd look to the stars. Specifically, they'd look for the North Star because it was a singular point of reference external to themselves. And from there, that point's not gonna change. They can then orchestrate and navigate themselves to that external reference point. But imagine for a second that you get on one of these ships in the middle of the night, in the middle of the North Atlantic, and it's pitch black, and the captain says, well, you know, on this ship, we do something a little differently. We don't go by the North Star. We are navigating by the lantern that's attached to the bow of the ship. (laughs) Just think about that for a second. You only can see a few feet in front of the ship. Do you recognize that when we navigate our lives according to a reference point that's on the ship, It means the ship is adrift. It means the ship is aimless. It means the ship is lost. This is the truth of what expressive individualism will ultimately land us on. A life that is full of interior introspection with no reference to external authority and truth. We need the North Star. We need that guiding light. Listen to the words of Isaiah. Isaiah 64, who says, who, that the prophet Isaiah says, you, O Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hands. Or Augustine, who famously said, O God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Or perhaps my favorite Isaiah 43, verse 1. Isaiah 43, verse 1. Listen to these words. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The first word that God speaks to us in the waters of baptism is that we belong to him. You belong to me, God says. You're mine. And that is where this search for identity is grounded. 
But the next thing he says is, you're beloved to me. I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, you own someone, but own something, but do you love it? My beloved son, the one whom I love, whom I adore. And he's speaking that, yes, over you. I think one of the biggest challenges we have as human beings is to continually believe the truth that we're loved. (laughs) For Christians, to keep remembering that we're loved. Fundamentally, you are loved. You are not loved because of the sum total of your achievements. You're not loved because you're lovable, as C.S. Lewis says. You're loved because God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. God chose to love you. It's so hard to remember that we're loved. It's so hard to not fall into that despair. I remember when I was doing My Fair Lady a number of years ago. I know My Fair Lady is playing here in Dallas right now. I played it. I played Freddie Einsford Hill a number of years ago in My Fair Lady. Now, it's a bucket list kind of role for a tenor. I was so excited to play this role. If you don't know My Fair Lady, I don't know what to do with you. But the point is, My Fair Lady, great musical. Freddie is the love interest of Eliza. He gets to sing, I have often walked down this street before. Now you remember, right? So I was so excited to play this role. And we had filled full houses every night. Standing ovations every night. All the reviews came out, just loved the show and loved me. Oh, they loved me. And then about three weeks into the production, another review came out and it didn't love the show that much and it really didn't love me. It said in the review, Donison performs Freddie a little over the top. I said, over the top? Over the top? Weeks of standing ovations, every other review was stellar. One bad word and I was destroyed. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? This is what we struggle with as human beings. One bad word comes in and we're absolutely destroyed. We're so frail in our sense of how much we're loved. But can you imagine what it would be like to actually live your life in such a way that you knew to the core of your being always and in every circumstance that you were loved? that it could not be taken from you, that regardless of what was going on around you, that you were fundamentally loved. Can you imagine what that life would look like? You don't have to imagine that hard. You can see that life when you read the life of Jesus. When you see Jesus' life, you are seeing a fully human being live out life, believing every second that he is loved by the Father. Jesus lived his entire life in that sure and certain confidence that he was the beloved son. He knew it to the core and look at how he lived his life. You know, when you know you're loved, when Jesus would look at the love of the father, right? He heard it at his baptism. I'm the beloved son. He knew it. It was the love of the father that the devil tried to question in the desert. No, Jesus stood up to it. It was the love of the father that sustained Jesus when he was misunderstood when he was attacked, when he was criticized, when he was spat upon. It was the love of the Father that helped him sail through those moments. It was the love of the Father that sustained him in those hardest moments in Gethsemane before his death. It was the love of his Father that he felt momentarily abandoned from when he bore your sin and mine in his body on the cross 
momentarily separated from God as he went to hell for us with our condemnation on his shoulders. And it was the love of the father that then raised him from the dead on the third day. And it's the love of the father that he invites you and I into now to live our lives in response to now. To live a life knowing that you're loved by the God of the universe. And that love is not gonna go away. I love, again, Isaiah 43. I read you verse one, verse four. You're precious. God says, this is God speaking. You're precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Oh, that we could believe those baptismal words today. You belong to God. You're beloved by God. And can you hear it? You're beautiful to God. He says, with you, I'm well pleased. Well pleased. It means when he looks on you, he delights in you. When he looks on you, he he likes what he sees. When he looks on you, he says to the angels around him, come, look how beautiful this one is. Now, let me be clear. This is very important. You are not well-pleasing because you're just perfect the way you are. That's not what this is saying. We have sin within us. We need to repent of that sin. God is doing this work by the Holy Spirit. It's not that we're beautiful because then we say in some kind of arrogant way, oh, I've just got everything sorted out. You don't have everything sorted out and neither do I. We are not beautiful and well-pleasing on our own merit. You are well-pleasing to the Father because the perfect Son of God took all your imperfections on himself and gave you his perfection. You and I are well-pleasing, beautiful to God because Jesus took everything ugly, broken, and sinful in us and said, I'll take that, you take my righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the heart of the gospel, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we would be called beautiful before God. And that is what we are. You and I have been made well-pleasing. When the father looks at you, he doesn't just say, you're mine and I love you. Well-pleased. And you know what that does to a human being when they begin to believe that they're truly well-pleasing to God? You know what what that does within our hearts and our minds, the capacity within us? how it changes our perspective, how it changes our future, to know at the core of our being that we are truly pleasing and beautiful to God. I love how Paul, when he's dealing with Corinth, this is Paul dealing with one of his hardest congregations, right? Corinth was a mess. And so what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter four? I love this. He says, it is not a big deal that you judge me. It's not a big deal that I judge myself. He says, God is the judge. Now, this is a man who's dealing with a totally dysfunctional church who are accusing him of all kinds of things. And he continues to work with them. Why? Because fundamentally he knows what really matters. Here's, what, here's my paraphrase of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. He's saying, I don't care too much about what you think of me. I don't care too much about what I think of me. I care completely about what God thinks of me. In those words, in that understanding of being made righteous, being made beautiful, being made well-pleasing before God, this is where life changes. 
Paul, like Jesus, can then sustain and stand in the face of all kinds of hard circumstances, knowing at the core of his belief that God has said, well-pleasing, because Jesus has made it so. This is the truth of what God has done in our life, made us well-pleasing to him. I remember when I was in 11th grade, just a few months before my conversion to Christianity, I had a conversion of my mind in a small way. It was nowhere near profound, obviously, than my conversion, but it was a kind of conversion in a way. I was in 11th grade, and I'd never done well in school. And I, I had not done well in school. I'd always just sort of barely passed because when I was in second grade, I'd been told that I was slow. So my second grade teacher, who was, you know, an expert, uh, decided to tell me and my parents that I was slow, put me in the remedial program. And so from that point on, I lived up to those expectations. I said, all right. So I just sort of barely passed classes and never was a good student. I just said, I'm not smart, right? 11th grade, my English teacher, Mr. Gubbles, came up to me after I flunked some test and he was angry. Oh, I thought, here's one of these teachers trying to like save the world, you know? And he came into my, you know, in, in his office, called me in and he was mad. And, I, and he said, Paul, I would go easy on you if I knew you were stupid. And he said, but I know you're smart. Now, I had heard a lot of things about myself in my life. I mean, I heard that I was entertaining, but no one had ever said to me, you're smart. And something shifted in my mind and heart that day. I thought, I'm smart? The possibility emerged. Within a few months, I was on the dean's list and that carried on through the rest of school because an 11th grade English teacher simply said, you're smart. The effect on me. Can you imagine the effect on a human life when the God of the universe who sees everything you've ever done looks on your life and says, beautiful, well-pleasing. It doesn't mean that there's not sin to be dealt with. Of course there is. We have to repent and grow and the Holy Spirit's doing that work, but we do it in a place of freedom and joy, knowing we are already well-pleasing. We don't repent hoping to earn our way into a well-pleasing relationship with God. We repent knowing we're already forgiven, we're already loved. That is freedom. That is the gospel. This is what changes a life. To hear these words, you are my beloved child. With you, I'm well pleased. This is where you find your identity. Not within, not in the world, but in those waters. Friends, we need to hear this again. It's one thing for pagans to live. I, I lived as a pagan. I know what it is to, to live just looking inside. Uh, you know, that happens. It's when it happens to Christians that we must raise the alarm. We as Christians will forget our baptism again and again. And we'll do what the world does. Look within and try and solve it all here. Look to the waters. It's the reason when we build our churches, we put our fonts right there. When you come in the door of the church, the first thing you see is the place where God told you who you really are. Remember, believe it. Lean into the truth of these waters. This is where you find who you are. Everything that emerges in your identity emerges out of this foundational truth. I'll close with this with Corey Tenboom, the 
concentration camp survivor who said, look at the world and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look at God and be at rest. You are my beloved child. With you, I'm well pleased. This is who you are in Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.